1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Now, the biggest, the newest, the most exciting of all the Planet of the Apes pictures. Climaxed by the spectacular Revolt of the Apes. The most awesome the most horrifying spectacle in the annals of science fiction. First pampered as pets, then abused as servants, now oppressed as slaves. Mobilization of all security forces, police, militia, and reserve defense units. See that every entrance into the city is cordoned off immediately. Yes, sir. Our control methods to improve the use of tear gas and sedation dunks. There will be but one control method. Shoot to kill. Ready! Aim! Fire! the screen explode as man faces ape in the ultimate revolution. There is fire, there is smoke. And in that smoke, from this day forward, my people will plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is upon you now! <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and it's taken me a while, but I've put back together our Planet of the Apes crew, which includes Scott Gardner. Hello. Zaki Hassan. Greetings. 
and back after a uh, lengthy tour of Europe, Rich Handley. Or was it was it an exile, actually, I guess? Self-imposed exile? Maybe I was exiled in Europe. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is, I think we live about 10 minutes from each other. Yes. But, <laughs> but it's still – and, and you're the toughest one for me to get a hold of sometimes. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, no need to be sorry. Life gets in the way. But uh, we've now – We've kind of gone in in a strange circle here because the first movie I reviewed was the uh, Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Then Zachy and I started on Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and then you jumped in with us, and we did Dawn and, and War. And then we went back to the originals, and we are now up to Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. So we are quickly running through this. Well, not quickly, but we are... <laughs> Quickly approaching the end. Yes. (laughs) Quickly approaching the end of this uh, film franchise, unless they uh, announce something new, uh, as we do Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Now, for me, as with all of the Planet of the Apes movies, I first saw this in the movie theater, and I saw it several times in the movie theater. Uh, And I've always been a big fan of this one, and I know we're all big fans, so that goes without saying. But did anyone else see this in the movie theater? You know, I was trying to think if I did, and I don't believe I did. I think even at that point, I would have been young. So I think I'm pretty sure that my first exposure on all of them was the 4:30 movie. Okay, well, this is 1972. Yes, yeah, I would have. So, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I would have been four years old. So I'm pretty positive that I that I that I, I wouldn't have been in the theater for that. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been nine, and I absolutely was in a movie theater. Uh, <laughs> But at nine years old, I can tell you this movie, I loved it, but it was also frightening for me. I remember seeing it like, I, I think I saw it in a late afternoon matinee. And by the time I got out of the theater and home, and I guess this would have been on the re-release because it was released in June. Uh, so it would have been staying lighter later. Uh, so it must have been on like the re-release in the winter months because... When I went home from the movie theater, it was dark out already. And I just had images of, of apes roaming the streets at that point. And I guess that was that's either normal for a nine-year-old imagination or I'm, you know, just weird. I don't know. Uh, but this movie did frighten me in a good way. I'm sorry, what was that? Or there was an ape revolution going on in your neighborhood, which is also possible. I was concerned about that. Uh, you know, <laughs> I I have always been able to emerge myself into the movies, and I, I continue to be able to do that. So, you know, if, if it's a scary movie for me, it's scary, and that's the end of the story. And when you see the level of violence that's going on, you know, I can understand where where a young kid would be afraid. Uh, but that's where I want to really focus at least the most of our attention to. Uh, as I was telling Scott and Rich before we all got together and before we started recording, uh, there is the theatrical version of this movie and there is the unreleased, unedited version. Uh, and the other day, in order to prepare to, to do this show, I watched the latter. And I'm not 100% certain that I, never saw it, that I ever saw it before. Uh, I thought I had, but watching it, I did not specifically remember all of the scenes that, you know, that weren't in the edited version. Uh, And they were 
fairly violent. Now, this this is, I guess, uh, a testament to the uh, rating system when they added the PG-13, because I think on the original cut, it would have been PG-13. But because that didn't exist at the time, it would have been an R movie. And I think that yeah. could be death for a Planet yeah. of the Apes movie. Yeah. I uh, I just watched this, rewatched rather, I just rewatched this yesterday and did something I'd never done before, which was I watched them back to back. I watched the theatrical and then I turn around and I watch the unrated version um, back to back to see what the comparisons were and everything. And it was kind of shocking, um, all the stuff that is on the unrated version. If you ever want to do that, by the way, you can basically go to the movies like three quarters of the way over before you're going to get any real noticeable stuff. Because just about everything that makes the the unrated version the unrated version is pretty much right at the end of the movie when the revolution actually happens. Because um, I couldn't help but notice you see very little blood. Um, I think I only saw two real instances of, of blood um, in the theatrical cut, whereas at in the unrated version, um, there's a lot of blood and guts toward the very end, you know, when the, when the full massacres, I mean, you know, apes and people getting shot in the face and it, it's, it's pretty brutal. And it reminded me a lot, I think just because of the, the special effects of the day, but it reminded me a lot of like Dawn of the Dead for yeah. some reason with the bright red blood and, and kind of, I, I look at it as kind of like over the top, almost campy violence in a, in a funny sort of way, but that's just what it reminded me of. But yeah, I, I instantly thought, wow, this, this totally would have been an R rated movie in its day. So See, I, the, I blood, the blood itself reminded me of dirty Harry when they show blood there, the, yeah. the color and the texture of it. And yeah. the thing about that that kind of brings me back a little bit is the cinematographer in this movie is Bruce Surtees, who also was the cinematographer for Dirty Harry. Now, okay. I don't know if that's a, you know, if that's a prop thing where the blood is what it is or if that's something about the way it's filmed. But yeah. I, I, I've, I've always had a, a, you know, I've seen a lot of things that Bruce Sertes, he was one of the first cinematographers I was ever aware of because I was a big Clint Eastwood fan and he seemed to do a lot of his movies. Uh, so, you know, I became aware of him and, you know, saw his things. So when he, when I saw that he did this, that I, you know, I, I kind of paid special attention to that. Now, uh, just starting at the beginning of the movie, before we get into the differences between the two, uh, one of the things that I noticed this time that I really didn't grasp in previous viewings, which is hard to imagine because I've seen this so many times, but at the beginning, like it threw me off a little bit thinking, okay, Caesar or Milo, as he is at the beginning of the movie, seems to be completely unaware and shielded from the violence of the humans and what they're doing to the apes, which almost seems to contradict the fact that he was a circus performer in, you know, before, before the movie began. Uh, but apparently he was, you know, he, he was very shielded by uh, Armando. But keep in mind, Armando basically raised him as a son. The, uh, the facade was that he was a circus performer, and he was, but the facade was that he was just a circus performer. But I, I think that Armando kept that. I mean, he 
this this was a man who loved all animals, so there was probably not a lot of brutality at his circus. And they they comment on the fact that the circus stays to you know uh, remote areas. And I think that all those things combined was Armando's way of preventing um, preventing his foster son from ever feeling marginalized. Yeah, and the I, I, you reason, yeah. The I'm only sure. reason they ended up doing this tour with the pamphlets in the beginning was because I, you know, the, uh, the circus basically was not doing as well. Circuses were dying out. And, um, but otherwise I think he probably would have kept him, uh, disconnected from the real world as long as he could have also because there was always the chance that he was going to yell lousy human bastards. in the middle <laughs> of the <world>. So, <laughs> well, that was a question I had was that, I mean, am I just being thick or is that really the whole motivation for why they're in the city in the beginning in the first place is to hang pamphlets because that seems like if that is the motivation, then it makes Ormondo seem kind of stupid because here he's taking Caesar, who he's carefully sheltered all these years and throwing him completely in the deep end of, you know, the, the human abuse of ape kind and as you say i mean instantly it's you know lousy human bastards i mean it, it's it's it all happens in like an afternoon yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of weird yeah armando is such a likable character but you would think at a minimum that he would prep milo uh yeah. for this right you know he, he would let him know this is what you're going to experience and be ready for it because it's you know, it's startling and it's upsetting unless unless in shielding. I'm going to just call him Caesar. I, I'm not comfortable calling him Milo <laughs> unless in shielding Caesar, he shielded himself, too, and, and became that, unaware that was, of the extent of it. That was, I that figured, was my thought. I, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Zachy. Sorry. Uh, sorry, Rich. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that Armando himself was to some extent uh, unaware of just how bad things had gotten. Uh, you know, you can see a scenario. I mean, we know how Armando treats animals from the previous film. And he's out there in the hinterlands doing his thing. And then little does he realize that, uh, you know, the cities have turned into a fascist state. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, uh, without, uh, you know, without him being aware of it, you know, I'm sure he had a broad sense of what was happening, but this was him witnessing it for the first time. That's my uh, postulation. I totally agree. I, I think that the fact that, that they had been staying to the fringes uh, to avoid the big city life also kept him a little naive. Um, and, and maybe, I mean, he's also, Armando is an optimistic person, so maybe he, was hoping that things would go better than they did. I forget whether it's, I think it's one of the earlier scripts. I think if I remember correctly, that specifies that the only reason they were there was because he was desperate to keep the circus afloat. I, I It's been years since I've read the scripts, but I think that was from one of them that basically, um, and Zachy, please correct me if I'm wrong, because you probably would know this. <laughs> uh, but I seem to remember that that was his reason for going there. And so he was that, born out of desperation, and uh, he, he just hoped everything would go okay. That is in my recollection. That yeah. That's the reason he's there. So I have to presume that it comes from uh, having read something to that to you know. To, to that extent at some point. It also could be from the novelization. And by the way, I might add it might it's by by far the best of the five novels 
uh, you know, for one novel and then four novelizations. If you're going to river read them, the, the novelization of this film adds so much to the movie compared to the others. So I it could have to do that from that. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that I've had the novelization of this for literally decades and uh, I've never even cracked the cover on it, but I I've been meaning to. So yeah, I'm going to have to do that because I've often wondered about that. Yep, absolutely. This is, this was, you know, very noted, uh, novelist wrote, wrote this John Jakes and, um, and it's, it's worth it. It adds a lot of, it adds a lot of context. And so it could be that Zachy and I are remembering it from that because, uh, admittedly my focus has been on other franchises in recent years. So it's been a while. <laughs> well, you know, it, the, well, the I, thought... I can definitely see that though, because, you know, for me, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit this, this and, and battle have always been the two that for me, I, I'm honestly with the original five apes movies, I'm kind of done after escape. But I've come to appreciate this one um, over the years, and that's largely for two big things is for one, finally having access to the unrated version, which I mean, that to me, that's just that's the way I watch the movie. Yeah. Um, but also the the you know, what I would call the expanded universe, you know, if this was Star Wars, you know, the the comics, the you know, all the other stuff that's out there, you know, the short stories and all that have helped kind of explain and fill in some of the gutters of the of the story with it because there's a lot of headcanon in this movie if you're going to make it work in my opinion because i don't think it stands very well on its own um but if you kind of get you know the other pieces you need to make a full story from other things like the comics and uh you know some of the short stories and things that are out there then i, I think it i think it is a really good story um, you just kind of have to fill it out a little bit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I think if you add the motivation that we talked about for Armando, that he himself is naive to an extent or ignorant of the extent of the paranoia and the violence that's going on in the city, it does resolve one of my other problems with the movie, and that's just that he, he you know, <laughs> that he just wouldn't, you know, not only would he have to have prepared Caesar, but he also, you know, should have been a little bit more reticent to even go out there. But if he's kind of avoided it all this time and doesn't realize how bad it is, I could see where he might come out thinking, you know, this is going to be, you know, not, not really a big deal. Also keep in mind that where he's gone is a particularly fascist area. It may be that the entire United, well, all of North America is not like that. Breck's area seems to be incredibly fascist. He's, he's treated like an emperor. And, um, and so it may be that this is simply not, I mean, it's, it's kind of like if you see the news and you, you hear about a, a different part of the United States where things aren't overly bad, you really wouldn't know this until you went there. You wouldn't until you experience it. It's all theory, you know? So it see, could be that he's simply not aware of just how bad it is just from having put on the TV. But I, I was left with the impression and maybe it was naive of me, but I was left with the impression that this is the way the whole country was and that, you know, as you're watching it, you're just feeling this is the ape revolution until they kind of bring, you know, in, in the dialogue, they bring you to the point that this is now going to occur all over the country. You, you know, know they, they, they make it come out that that it's not, you know, that that this is just the beginning. This isn't, you know, they're not free yet. <laughs> sure, sure. The, the, well, one of the things that that um that the dialogue at the end in particular points out is that. 
this is divine intervention. That this is the the whole emperor moth concept and the idea that as it's happening here, it's simultaneously helping happening elsewhere, and it's even set up with Armando's line in, in Escape. You know, if if it is man's destiny to be dominated, let it be dominated by you know such as you. The idea is that this was going to happen. You know, man man's man was done. He and and this was the apes rising up everywhere, whether it was that. Caesar was a, a catalyst, which is what the concept for the comic revolution on the planet of the apes is. That he's telepathically, uh, unknowingly, but telepathically inspiring all the apes to do this. Uh, whether it was yeah. whether it was a godly figure stepping in, either way. And by the way, there's evidence for that in the film because you'll notice that um, the apes are pretty subservient and um, and 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 not rebellious until. Caesar walks by them and yes. they keep doing things like turning and looking at him. They sense yes. something about him and then they do all sorts of crazy things uh, like, like, you know, shoe shine a sock and so forth. And all of this is just from him passing, which really does lend credence to the idea that this was a divine intervention of some sort. Yeah. That there's yeah, some really sort like of psychic that. bond between them. Yeah. yeah. We covered that. I don't know if Paul remembers, but we covered that when we did Apes Month on Back to the Bins like ages ago. We covered that series you're talking about. It was a, I think it was like a five or six issue uh, series by yeah. by some like fly by night comic company. Now I comics. Think that was the only thing they ever uh, did, you comics, know, was yeah, that series. It's comics from yeah. it was, uh, um, Ty Templeton and Joe O'Brien, and it's it's yeah. one of my favorite ape stories ever. Yeah, uh, it's it's really yeah, they, good. It's a it's a it's really amazing. good story. Yeah, it, you know there was supposed to but, be a sequel to that called Empire and the Planet of the Apes, but the company went under. I wish somebody would pick it back up. I I learned that I think while we were doing Apes Month and doing the research into that, I, I learned that that there was supposed to be another story that just never never happened for whatever reason. But I, I'm glad you brought this up because this is one of the things I was really hoping we were going to talk about tonight. And I really wanted to pick your guys' brains on and what do you think of this? Because this is one thing that happens in both this, the original Ape series, and again, um, right from the very first movie of the whatever we're calling it, reboot universe or whatever, you know, that starts with Rise is something I would call uh, th this to me is a callback. I don't know if any of you guys are Star Trek fans, but. There was a great series of, of books back you know, in, in Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation's heyday, called The Nitpicker's Guides, and they did mm -hmm. several. Yeah. I, I have them. And, and just, just to interrupt you, Scott, for a second, uh -huh. I don't know if you guys are Star Trek fans. Have you met us? Well, I, I know <laughs> you are. I, I, I'm talking about the other fellows. But... Yeah, the other two, too. <laughs> believe me. But so, so you guys know the books I'm talking about. So one yeah, of the... One of the chapters in the breakdowns of each episode was, you know, they would cover things like, you know, uh, equipment malfunction, you know, just all kinds of different things. But one of the subcategories was something called changed premise, meaning that in a prior episode, this was how things worked. But now suddenly with this episode, this is how this works and it's completely different. So I'm going to I'm curious to what your opinion is of the changed premise that happens in both the original Apes movies and then again, starting with the reboot movies of man's downfall. And granted, a lot of this is our supposition of what has happened. But when we see the the um, Statue of Liberty at the end of the original Apes movie 
and Charlton Heston's reaction and, and everything he says, I think we're in agreement with him of the assumption that man has nuked himself, that, that at some point there was a, a nuclear war and we did ourselves in. And I think that's definitely carried over to beneath uh, with uh, with Brent uh, also makes the same assumption that we did this to ourselves. Man's folly. And I, I think some of this is even borne out in the in the sacred scroll, scrolls that Cornelius reads at the end of the first movie. But then suddenly, slowly with the third movie and then definitely with this movie, that all changes. It's no longer you know, us versus the the Russians or whatever that led to the downfall of the world and the rise of the apes because of atomic radiation, it becomes man versus the ape. Suddenly it's the ape revolution that brings about the planet of the apes. Starting with rise, that completely does away with the whole atomic aspects. And I don't remember that even becoming a thing through any of those three movies. It's all about that virus. So I'm just curious, what? how do you feel about that changed premise? Because I understand it, and it's kind of neat, and it leads to this movie and some of the heady things that, that this movie's discussing. But I liked the original parable, you know, the, the warning of, you know, that we were going to, you know what I mean? The, the whole playing into the atomic fears and all that. So I'm just curious what you guys think on okay. that. Okay, I have a theory on this that fits right in with it that, that you're uh, – I'm glad you presented this because one of the inconsistencies in the story is, that's always bothered me a little bit and I had to have my headcanon for it is when Cornelius gives the story of how the apes rose and how it's not consistent with what we see in these movies. Aldo doesn't even exist right. until the fifth movie, uh, and he's the one who said no and not Lisa. Uh, so my theory on this is, uh, and this goes into a little bit of the debate that, that you and I have uh, engaged in when we talk about the Terminator movies, where we talk about fate versus making your own future. And I do think they're a little inconsistent here with that as well, because I'm viewing this as it's fate for the apes to take over the world. It's, it's, it's just preordained it's going to happen. So in one continuity, it happens exactly the way Cornelius says, and that's altered when they come back in time and change history, and it actually accelerates that ape revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the way I hit canon it to have it make sense. Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I've always looked at it. This is me. Uh, but I've I've always looked at um, the television series and the first film and the second film being one timeline, and then when Cornelius and Zero come back, it creates a branch uh, that ends up at something resembling the the animated series. That's that's sort of just been how I've always looked at it. I like it. <laughs> you know, here here's the thing to remember though. Going back to the 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 wording in the original question here. Um, I don't agree that they changed the nuclear aspect. If I don't, I don't know if it's been a while since you've seen Battle, but that's a big part of it. The yeah, they're, they're post-nuclear. Yeah, the idea is that in between conquest and battle, the nuclear war happened. And, uh, um, and in that time, mankind ended up uh, irradiated, a lot of them. The, the ones surface of the world was ravaged by the right. violent war. Exactly. Uh, and, who, and it leads to one of my favorite lines in... in, in um, uh, one of my favorite lines in battle, um, 
uh, about being, you know, we're all irradiated. I, it's just, it's a funny line that Culp says. Uh, we're, we may not be active, but we're, but we're, but we're all irradiated. Um, and, uh, but the, uh, so it, the timeline must change, given the fact that the sacred scrolls in the original movie are 1,200 years old, but this is 2,000 years before, and the apes don't believe there was anything before 1,200 years ago. Um, um, and then even by escape, suddenly the sacred scrolls talk about events that they didn't talk about in the first movie, you know, like uh, Cornelius has knowledge that mankind was once uh, um, was once the owners, even though in, in the sacred scrolls were written written 1,200 years ago, according to Planet, and mankind basically was just always a, a fool who scratched himself and you know and, and got in trouble, and so that changed. But then there's also the fact that according to Escape, the revolution happens hundreds of years in the future from now. Um, uh, it was like centuries of domination before uh, b- before an ape named Aldo you know led the revolution. So this isn't even the same Aldo because it's centuries in between. So there is definitely a timeline change. I would agree with that, but I don't agree that they dropped the um, the nuclear aspect simply because that's one of the big prim- that's one of the big um, uh, aspects of the fifth movie. As far as right, right. I was just gonna say one more thing. As, as far as Rise goes, keep in mind that the new movies are a different timeline. Um, you know, it's a reboot, so they've dropped it. But in other words, those movies don't lead to the old films anyway. But in but my mind, I try to make them. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to deny it. I, I, I'm always trying to, to to correlate it and make it somehow work out, and and it it can't because there's just there's if if nothing else, there's too many nods and Easter eggs to the original series for yeah, it to exactly. be you know reality. Yeah, exactly. I, I'll I'll agree with that, but at the same time, I mean, we do see reference to the launch of the Icarus and everything in yeah, Rise. So I thought they were. <laughs> and it, right, it, right, yeah, that's yeah. It was an ANSA mission going out into deep space in '72, uh, whereas now it's a 2011 NASA mission going to Mars. So it's ah, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's not even the same. <laughs> so <laughs> you know. What, also, the other say, thing is that keep in mind the ape revolution happens in '91. So it, the idea that that rise could possibly lead to that in, in 2011 wouldn't make sense, <laughs> right? Unless you, unless we say it is two different timelines, and then it, you know, in other words, if we uh, Zaki's idea that that, that um, the coming back changed everything, then you could say, well, maybe you know, maybe the new films are what happened before Planet, before uh, you know, b- before the time change happened, and that's possible. I mean, before I think, we I get off this, I'm, I'm... Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I just just, just the one thing I wanted to say. Uh, I've, I've, I, I don't mean to name drop, but uh, I got to interview Matt Reeves uh, about uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes when when that came out, and you know I showed him my Apes fanzine, and so we were going back and forth about the films, and and uh, one thing he said was, uh, you know, do do you want to see uh, another version, uh, a remake of the original film to? you know, as part of this series. Um, and, and I said, well, we've already gotten like the best version of that movie. And I personally just like the idea of, you know, something in that vein happens at some point down the line. Uh, we don't need to see it because we've already got the best version. There's all these other stories that you can tell, you know, filling in that gap. I very much agree with you. 
Yeah, I, I do too. I think we've discussed that totally in one agree. of our past conversations that, you yeah. know, there are so, so many years in between this and when Taylor is there that yeah. there's no reason to ever get to that in the timeline. And from what I understand, the next the next film will still just be a, you know a generation or so after the last three anyway. I think it would I think it would be a long time before they would they would even get to that far in the future. I, as long as it, it, you know, I, I figure it would jump far enough ahead that the apes are wearing clothes similar to the original movies. Uh, you still got lots of stories to tell. Yeah, absolutely. But but normalize apes wearing clothing. That's my hashtag. That's my new hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, go ahead, Scott. You had a point you were going to make. Yeah, no, I just had a quick question because you're right. It has been a long time since I've seen Battle and Full Confession. It's it's always been my my least favorite. Um, I, I I really don't enjoy that movie. I did remember that it had it was supposed to be post some sort of disaster, but the the nuclear war in that who was it against was it was it man versus man or was it, it was man, man versus, versus man the, the apes basically just sort of took off out into the wilderness and sat it out so the forbidden zone is the man, man's cities basically became an irradiated wasteland while the apes just sat it out out out, out in, in in the forests and then they assumed we had killed each other off so it's very similar to the beginning so that's some, that actually similar. somewhat similar to war then i guess not yeah, Dawn. Dawn. actually, more more similar to Dawn. Or, or Dawn, I mean, Dawn, Dawn. In, in, yeah, in many Dawn, ways, right. Dawn and War are basically battle and, and conquest. In many ways, there's a lot of parallels in those two those two sets of movies. I mean, the, the entire trilogy, the new trilogy, is basically uh, yeah, conquest, conquest and battle. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It just so now, it seems odd to me that we would be because this is a thought that I had at the very end of of watching these two yesterday is that. Um, and I think it happens more with um, with the unrated version. I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to remember if the same bits of speech are in both. But there, there's a point where Caesar is talking about, uh, you know, man's quarrel with himself, essentially. But it, it sounds to me, if I'm interpreting everything correctly, that that. All of this with the apes is basically going down in this one night because he he basically proclaims at the end of the movie that this is now the planet of the apes. So if that's true and well, this ape revolution birth, is happening, birth of I'm sorry, it's the right. It's the beginning, but it's it's you know like it, it's, it's not it the end. A while. Keep in mind yeah. also too that when you get by the time you get to battle, they're basically a a, a small grouping of tree houses. I mean, even then, years later, it's still not even much you know it it's kind of like watching the three new movies it takes a long time for a bunch of vapes mm-hmm. who have moved to the wilderness to build a society so even in battle which is years later uh they're still a pretty fledgling little thing i think more than anything caesar is boasting because he just defeated uh, the, the man who was responsible for his father's death so i think that's a large part mm-hmm. of it yeah. no i did so see I, I did see something where it said that don murray uh, in preparation for uh, his his role, uh, would actually rehearse in German <laughs> to to yeah. create kind of that Nazi feel about his uh, his society. You know, well, one thing I'd like to offer about Breck that I think is interesting. I and I'm curious what you all think, but I feel like Breck is the first straight up villain in this series. Absolutely. 
Because both Hasline and, and, and Zayas are trying to protect their societies. Right. Yeah, they're 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 mirror images of each other who are not necessarily evil, and and then you uh, along comes Mustachio twirling. Uh, <laughs> now I love Breck, Don't get me wrong. I even love Pulp in the fifth movie. They're he's both fun, that theory. But, but yeah, but he's uh, he he wow if he's he really is embracing his inner Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 we have Breck who's who's you know in theory carrying on Hasline's. Uh, goals, at least in theory, he's doing so in a uh, in, in, in an unforgivable way. Right, right. But, well, but you know, we we have talked in the previous movies about how Zayas and and how Hasline were in their own way heroes trying to protect their society and their way of life. Then you put you can kind of reverse mirror image that with McDonald who is actually helping along the end of the way of his of life that he knows. Yeah, it's a good... It's like Armando. Yeah. Yeah, Armando as well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, think, you know, Armando, his his whole idea is just to try and live in peace. I think that really is his only goal. I think Armando accidentally does it, whereas McDonald actively does it. Yeah, I think McDonald knows what, what the potential repercussions of his actions are. Yeah, but whereas I don't but think Armando too, does. I I think McDonald too is taken off guard by what happens at the end. That's why he says to Caesar, "This isn't yeah. how it was supposed to be." Oh well, yeah, no, he he sees it go too far. Yeah, you but know, but I do think he knows when when he sets Caesar free, he knows what the risks are. Oh sure. I, I don't I don't think McDonald at the moment he sets Caesar free. I don't think he's like and now. You know, uh, uh, twelve hours from now, you know, torches <laughs> and pitchforks. Right? I, I think no. he's thinking in in a very contained sense of like this this person Caesar. This person is innocent. If I send him, he will die, and I can't have that on my conscience. I right. think that's as far ahead as McDonald's thinks. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to think. I think he knows what Breck's fears are. And he's clearly an intelligent man, so he's probably even aware of what Hasline's fears were. So he's got to be aware of what he's risking, even though his own moral compass won't allow him for them to treat Caesar so inhumanely. I would add, too, that when you consider that the movie is 1991, given the actor's age, he would have been alive at the time of the Civil Rights Movement. He would have been a child, but he would have been alive And the movie is drawing parallels to this. I think that his conscience would never have let him allow uh, Caesar to be treated like that. And it it may have blinded him to the reality of what Caesar was going to do. Yeah, I think they only Um, mention it overtly once where he says, you know, you, the ancestor of slaves. mm -hmm. Uh, But even before that, they kind of obliquely reference it. Yeah, it's alluded to a couple of times. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I, I don't think it's it's not exact. It's not what I would call subtle, but it's also not clumsy when they make mm-hmm. those references. Yeah, I think I, the right. filmmakers are probably trying to walk a um, a risky line there. I think I, I think which is part of the reason some of those scenes were cut. I think they were afraid, like they had noble motives, but were at the same time afraid of to do what they wanted to do. Mm. So now, to me, the big and this is the biggest. Uh, potential debate on this one and i'm not sure where you guys are going to fall on it uh i think as a film the uncut version is better 
But right. as part of this quadrology, no, actually mm. it would be a, it's, it's five. So pentology, mm-hmm. as part of this pentology, the re-edited version is much more true to the character of Caesar that we're going to get in the next movie. Interesting. I think you kind of have to weigh this, if I'm interpreting your question correctly, which is, you know, which is better or which do we prefer, the theatrical or the unrated? I think you have to do it in kind of a vacuum. You have to do it without thinking ahead to the next movie, which in my my view works really well because I I'm not overly familiar with battle. I've definitely seen it, but it's it's my least favorite Um you know, whereas I can quote pretty much the other, you know, the first three films, definitely in large chunks of this one, I'd be hard pressed to think of a single line from battle. I'm just not that familiar with it. So being in that vacuum, I, I think this I think the unrated uh, version of this is is so much better. I, I enjoy it so much more. And I remember watching it for the very first time being like, Okay, I, I get this now. I, I kind of dig this. Whereas every time I'd ever seen the theatrical, it was just a big old groaner for me. It was just, um, you know, the the weaknesses of it to me stand out so much more. And I, I think a lot of it too is that, you know, I can forgive a lot of stuff. You know, I can watch an old Star Trek episode and forgive how cheesy the effects are and how bad the acting may be sometimes and things like that. But when you've got an entire critical moment of your basically the the whole climax of your movie and it's obviously a you know redone and the actor's voice isn't even the same it sounds like it's over the telephone or something and the (laughs) close-up is is on his face to try to disguise the fact that his mouth isn't really even moving it's it's just you know, you've you've t- you're taking this movie that's already walking a really, you know, it's right on that razor's edge of cheesy because the budget sucks so bad, and now you've just pushed it over into comedy because it, it's just, the the ending is just kind of ridiculous to the theatrical one. You know, no offense to anybody that that really likes that version, but it it just is. I mean, I watched that version; and it's just cringeworthy. Plus, you know, Caesar. Yeah, does a complete 180 at the very last minute after all this crap that he's gone through. And it's just, it, I'm sorry, the, the theatrical doesn't work for me at all. Plus, there's the big old problem of um, Lisa suddenly speaks, which I have a major issue with that. Although I, I can, strangely, I can actually uh, no prize that, too. But the unrated one, I think, really, really, really works well and i think it's it has an incredible uh you know a real impact to the ending you know the way that movie ends it's brutal and i can definitely understand why they changed it why they were really afraid that ooh this may not play you know i can i i totally get that but I, at the same rate i kind of wish that they'd had the balls to just go no this is the film we made and and we're going to run with this you know I, I do it's Gene Hackman at the end of Hoosiers. Well, I, I definitely <laughs> if you get that reference, I don't know. I definitely agree with Scott that the, that the uh, unedited version is better on pretty much every level. Um, it is very noticeable that they suddenly zoom in to cover the mouth movements when he did the <laughs> about face. And I, even as a kid, I remember watching and thinking, well. 
the way he says and now we will put our guns down their very next scene should be all of them dying so like it doesn't make any <laughs> sense right like the movie should like should have a coda at the end of the credits where the military just op- or even they don't need the military at that point the police just walk in and shoot them all so it, right. It, yeah. Yeah. Especially because <laughs> especially because it takes place at a mall, right? So I mean, it's not that big of a revolution, and so the idea that they would throw their guns down at that point is absurd. Uh, so for me, yes, absolutely, it is a far better film. And um, I don't want to jump ahead to the to the next uh, the next segment of the show, but but I'll be very interested in hearing your reaction to Battle because, in my opinion, the the the, the, the unread the uh, um unedited version of battle is a thousand times better yeah, than the theatrical indeed. version. Your opinion of the movie may change because all the best footage was cut out. There was an entire storyline involving the mutants that was just removed and, uh, and it's all put back in and it may, it, it makes the movie have a resonance to battle that's missing, which is what, yeah. what the goal was when it was written. So for me, these, the versions that I, I prefer to watch and anytime I show someone the movies, I always, always show them are the, uh, the, the extended versions of Conquest and Battle. That being said, Paul is absolutely right. Actually, was, I don't remember if it was Paul or Scott, so if I'm quoting the wrong, the wrong one, sorry. One of you had said that, it, uh, I think it was Paul, that um, in terms of leading into Conquest, it, it, it matches better with the theatrical version. That was you, right, Paul? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, then, and, and I'm just to, to, to put the, uh, you know, the statement on there, I do think... It's a superior movie in the in the unread, the uncut version. But you are right though, because because they assumed at the time nobody would see the unedited version. Battle, you know, was written from the kinder, gentler version of Caesar. So, but I, I can easily retcon this because it is years later, and yeah, he okay. he's less angry. You know, he he he. Yeah. And, and in the meantime, he befriended McDonald's brother, and he got to know. You know, the other he got to know Abe. And, and so he he relaxed and sudden, suddenly started realizing I'm not living up to my own um, <laughs> my own um, professed beliefs. This society needs to get better. And so I'm OK with the fact that uh, <laughs> that that the kinder, gentler Caesar from battle doesn't really flow from the unedited version of conquest, because, frankly, I think the edited version of conquest is an inferior version. And 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 just just to add to that, you know, I, Caesar is what what is he like eighteen in the in the in conquest? I think right? he's twenty. Okay, yeah. so so and then we jump ahead. Uh, well, dep- yeah, how many years will depend on what math they're using because that the fifth movie <laughs> keeps changing the It's twelve years, it's ten years, it's twenty seven years. It's hard to tell, but it is a long yeah. time later. Uh, it, long enough that uh, you mellow with age. I mean, gosh, I, yeah, I remember exactly. the things I used to be pissed off about 20 years ago, and I'm just, I can't muster that energy anymore. And the other thing is, it, there's a big difference between being a revolutionary and being being uh, the leader of a, of a, a government, you know, like just the, the things that you have to learn uh, about yourself in that regard. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing is, is it, it, I, I think the the violence of the original ending is so necessary because uh, I mean, obviously to Scott's point, I mean, gosh, when you watch the edited version, it's like, wait, you, you know, overthrow everybody. And then no, put your guns down. No. <laughs> like Roddy McDowell's energy level drops by, by several <laughs> degrees. <laughs> it's very obvious. He was the other thing. 
<laughs> They're like, hey, Roddy, we got we need we're scaring uh, the old white ladies. So it's, it's almost <laughs> like he was purposely reading it badly so he would hope to <laughs> not do it. Like, and now drop the weapons just just so that they would go. We can't use this, and unfortunately, they. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, but I mean, that, that, is there a more justified murder, bloody murder than Brick? Yeah. Right? Exactly. There's a guy who, if anyone had it coming, it's that guy. So the idea that the movie leaves him alive and then uh, the, the unforgivable sin, they leave him alive and they don't use him in the next one. Yeah. Well, that was because yeah. the actor didn't come back, but yeah. yeah I know. I'm just, they should have, they should have hogtied him and got him in there because that's the only reason you leave Brick alive is to give him. Because, because I, I got to be honest, Culp as the villain of the next one, I, it's it's a major step down from Breck. Oh, no, no question. And we'll talk about him in the next yeah. in the yeah. next one. I, I think but, that, uh, Culp is fun, but Breck is just so deliciously crazed evil. Yeah. And and it's you know the idea, but but here's the thing, not like Joker crazed. I mean, like a man who is so obsessively driven. More uh, Ahab. And that's what's you know. Whereas Culp yeah. seems more like he's evil because his boss was right. Right. <laughs> and with Breckett, this is a man driven with hatred, which genocidal people are. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, yeah, so I agree with you. I would have loved to see him come back. And in fact, when, when, when we do discuss the conquest, uh, um, comics that that's, you know, that's a big part of it. Now I, you know, trying to read up a little bit on the, Origin or the theatrical versus the unedited. Uh, I can't tell you where I saw the reference to it, but at one point they said in, in the end violence, it's at least assumed that McDonald's McDonald gets killed too. Yeah, it's in the script oh. actually. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that may be a bridge too far as far as the villainy goes. Because they're all lined up, and so they don't they don't actually say it, but the implication is because in one of the earlier draft scripts they're all lined up. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so so McDonald didn't have that takeaway watching it, though. Huh. He's killed and by yet, apes yet or The thing else. is, I think that that ended up my, – my take is that they didn't do that, because you know, no matter what version you're watching, simply because uh, Caesar was friends with his brother in the next movie. <laughs> so I have to think, you know, you don't execute a man and, then be, and his best friend is your brother. So I, no matter what version you're watching, in my headcanon, um, McDonald died between movies. See, I can, I can, I can accept the kinder, gentler Caesar, who killed Breck at the end, or you know, had Breck killed at the end of Conquest because he mellowed with age. I can't accept that he killed McDonald. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't uh, that I, I'm, I'm in my head canon. He didn't is what I'm saying. I, I, I think that no matter which version of Conquest you accept, I think McDonald had to have survived for the simple fact that his brother is Caesar's best friend in the next movie. <laughs> well, there's a scene in in uh, the Ape Command Center right towards the end uh, when after Caesar storms it and takes it over where there's two I think there are two gorillas are killing McDonald or about to kill him and Caesar calls them off of him. So yeah. if he wanted him dead, they, you know, they could have done it right then. You know, the, well, the I, novelization has a running thread about a really kindly handler at, at um uh, at, at ape management and 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 event, his eventual murder by apes and it's actually it's it's you know it's heartbreaking it, it, like it's one of the things that makes the novelization um work. I really need to read that. There there's a 
The the story that I credit to, to really turning me around on this movie was uh, I, I couldn't quote you which issue it is, but there's a, a uh, it's bannered right on the cover, I do believe, a Conquest of the Planet of the Apes tie-in. It was a one-shot issue of the issue Adventure makes- Adventure Comics series when Adventure had it. Um, they had the you know it was just called Planet of the Apes. It was uh, I think it ran like. I don't know, like twenty nine issues or something like that. It was it was real short. It was in the nineties. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, the issue you're talking about is issue nineteen. It was called Quitting Time, and yeah, it's 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 yeah, my favorite yeah, that's, issue of that run. That's it. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, great issue. Now, real quick question: You guys may know, you know, back during this time, you know, so many genre movies um, often had multiple cuts and multiple edits. You know, you'd have like Superman would have like the theatrical and the TV version and, you know, the international version and all this with different footage and stuff. Are there only just the two versions of this film or are there more edits out there? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I know like with early Godzilla films, just multiple versions that exist. I'm only right. aware of the two versions of, of Conquest and Battle. Zachy, maybe you wouldn't know differently. That, that's all I know, yeah. Yeah, I'm only familiar with these two as well. Um, but, but I mean, again, having not have any recollection of having watched it before now, the unedited, unedited version, the difference was stark to me. Uh, For sure. It was, it was severe. Uh and I can understand. You're right, by the way, you can just start with the revolution. Like, you, person, anyone who wants to see the differences, watch the theatrical, and then fast forward in the beginning of the revolution and conquest, and it's it's remarkable what how different it is. And and for anybody interested in doing it, just by the way, they're both available on HBO uh, now. Yeah. Oh, okay. The first instance I noted where I was like, okay, this is I'm, I'm officially in a different version was I tracked it right and there may be like a like a clip you know just a split second somewhere earlier in the film that I missed but where I I definitely noticed like okay because the running times are different between the two they differ by about two and a half minutes and the first instance I noted of additional footage was there's the uh the flamethrower guy Mm-hmm. During the the revolution, he's using the flamethrower and a gorilla sneaks around behind him and tackles him. And in the theatrical version, that's basically the end of that scene. But in the original, the uh, unrated version, the gorilla then grabs the flamethrower and sets the guy on fire. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a pretty brutal death, you know, in that sequence. Absolutely. And you also alluded to the there's a close up of a gorilla getting shot square in the face it, for, you know, like as someone who right. has grown up seeing the other version over and over again for 40 years. The first, I, you know, so I guess it would I don't remember. I don't remember exactly when I first got my hands on the unedited version. It was years ago. And I remember seeing it and just being shocked by the flamethrower and then the gorilla, the, the bloody, you know, gorilla mugging for the camera because I. This was so strange to me, you know. The, the par- you, you brought up a Star Trek parallel. What, I grew up watching Star Trek repeatedly. I don't even know how many times I saw every episode. But I saw them edited on Channel 11. And so when the VHS right. tapes came out and I, you know, I, 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 I subscribed to the Columbia House uh, set and I started getting them. And I was just like, what the hell? When did this happen? And it was a real right. shocking thing to discover <laughs> 
<laughs> that every single episode had footage I'd never seen. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, um, you know, which seems really quaint now, but that was, you know, that was the early nineties. And, uh, that's kind of what my reaction was to the bloody gorilla and the, and the flamethrower. It was fascinating to see this stuff that I'd never seen before in a movie I'd watched countless times. Mm. Right. I, uh, I got to interrupt this for just a second because I'm sorry to say, uh, Zachy's going to have to depart. Oh. Uh, so the three of us can keep talking, uh-huh. but before he walks away, I wanted to give him an opportunity to give, you know, his, his thoughts and anything he wants to sum up with. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, and I apologize for having to bail early. I'm enjoying listening to you guys. I'm like just sitting back listening to fellow ape fans just geeking out, which is always fun for me. <laughs> uh, you know, I, w- one point I, I had wanted to make is to me, what makes this one, uh, especially remarkable is that they had like $20 to make it, you know, and they did such a good job of covering for the fact that they had no money. Yeah. And obviously that helps because they, the mall is brand new and nobody's using it, et cetera. And, and also it goes to sort of Jay Lee Thompson's skill at, at, at uh, being able to disguise the, the, the seams, so to speak. But I think ultimately what makes this movie hold up and I would say hold up better than the one that came before it is that you're able to glance past the budgetary deficits because the, the story itself is so strong because uh, Caesar is such a great protagonist. It's impossible not to put yourself in his shoes. Uh, they do such a good job of, of making you care about Armando for the few minutes that he's in the movie. And all those things just, just work so that by the time we get to the end, uh, Notwithstanding the the, the uh, cleaned up uh, theatrical cut, but you know the, the the fire and brimstone of the of the unedited version, you you buy into it because you've been on this journey with the character, and and that's why it works, and that's why for me, I mean, it continues to hold up. All right, so before you walk away, uh, you want to give your Jaws rating on it? It yeah. is Jaws two. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for coming on with us, Zachy. I appreciate it. Thank you, you so know, much. Just, uh, you know, for what it's worth, anybody listening, Zachy is in an entirely different time zone than us. And although we all have children, Zachy has, like, more children than all of us combined. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm in the process of, of moving. And so we're in the next few weeks, I'm trying to get my entire house packed up and put, and it's, it's uh, rather overwhelming, but I want to like, no, I want to make sure to make some time because this is this is the important stuff. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> to hell with those kids. Uh, but no, but thanks for making the time for us. And, you know, we'll look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye, Zachy. Bye, Zachy. So, you know, just uh, to, to build on one of the points Zachy was making about the uh, the budget. I kind of felt that the makeup was superior in this than it was in Beneath, by far. Well, in the crowd scenes in particular, because in Beneath there are scenes where it looks like there's some pretty good masks in the front and then some, like, you know, dime store Halloween masks in the back rows. (laughs) Yeah, and and they're very obvious. Whereas in this one, in particular, I thought they made the gorilla makeup darker and more threatening looking than they had in the past. Well, I think Just part to... of that is because it's supposed to be um, 
modern day apes, even though they're they're human sized and wear clothes and can you know do things like wait tables. But they're <laughs> you know so like they're they're they, they need to he, I think they wanted them to look more like modern day apes. Oh, quick I, quick question on that. I, I'm just curious what you guys think about that. My my personal headcanon for this, and and I freely admit that I'm maybe injecting stuff from the 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 latter trilogy, you know, the reboot stuff. But I can't help but wonder the virus that killed dogs and cats. Now I know Armando said it had no effects on apes and humans, but I'm wondering. Is it possible they just don't realize that, yes, it actually has, that it's doing basically what it does in Rise and, and those movies, that it, that this is the catalyst for why in just 18 years apes have suddenly evolved to where they're, you know, they look the way they look and they can com- perform these tasks and again in the theatrical version so that lisa can speak by the end of the movie which really bugs me by the way i i really don't like that that she does but that's the only explanation i can give to why she does is because they actually have been affected by some catalyst you know by some outside influence what what do you guys think of that i I, I had oh go ahead rich you go first no please go ahead i was gonna say i had never thought of that when the original five existed, but once Rise came out, I did tie that thought together in my mind also that the thing that killed the dogs and cats was the same virus that we saw in that movie. I'll take it a step further, guys. I've always, my head cannon since I was a kid has been a two pronged thing here. Um, not only do I believe that the same virus, um, helped the apes evolve, but I also think it eventually led to mankind becoming mute, and I think Zero Cornelius brought it from the future. Ah, Ooh, yeah. yeah, even, even I like better. I like, I like that idea. I really I like that idea. Basically, it all ties in with the high, you know, with this loop concept, you know. The, the, the reason that in the original version of events we hear in Escape that mankind was still enslaving apes for hundreds of years after this point uh, is that time changed when Zero and Cornelius came back with, uh, with the with the the virus that everybody in that time frame is infected with that caused the apes to become intelligent, the humans to regress, and cats and dogs to vanish, and it, it therefore it happened hundreds of years earlier and on a very elevated scale. Which would, like which that. would give you the explanation for not only uh, Lisa speaking, you know, after being exposed to. Uh, Caesar for an extended period of time, but it would also kind of tie in with the fact that uh, the apes around Caesar would be exposed more so. Yeah. It also explains how the hell apes can do things like run errands for you and wait tables and cook. <laughs> because right. in the right. But that's apparently happening all over the country. Sorry? I said that's going on all over the country. That's not just in proximity. True, but it's an airborne virus that was brought back in '73, right? So if that's the case, in the 18 years since then, apes everywhere have started changing, and that's the reason ape management existed. Because if you build ape management today, okay, and you decided to bring in apes from Borneo and wherever else and teach them how to mop, do you know? Do you know what end up happening? They'd sit on the ground and suck the mop. (laughs) 
you, you tried to teach them to you tried to teach them to, 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 to cook. You know what would happen? They'd accidentally set themselves on fire. And if you told them to run an errand and pick up a book at a bookstore, you might never see them again because they'd climb a tree. So something happened in the interim that made every ape everywhere trainable. And and so I think that, that that's always been my explanation, a combination of two things, uh, that Zero and Cornelius put an airborne virus that just went nuts, the, the same way that it happened at the end of Rise. And the funny thing is, I, I, this was my headcanon long before Rise came out, so I, I felt kind of vindicated when the end of Rise happened. Uh, and, and also, I believe... I believe the movies are implying without coming out and saying it, that there is a divine intervention. And so I think the two and, and the virus may be the instrument of the divine intervention, you know, whatever is going on here. I think, um, this two prong, um, profound change, uh, upended one, one species and elevated three others and, and destroyed two others completely. Well, I, I think, I think- I think possibly on a subconscious level, because I've really never thought about this until just this very moment. But I, I think on some subconscious level all these years that this is why I've, I I haven't fully embraced this movie and why a lot of it has bugged me is that it makes me a bit of a hypocrite because I enjoy, for the most part, the aspects of the movie before it, Escape, that make me kind of fill in the the blanks myself. You know, how the hell did these three apes wind up in uh, Taylor's spaceship and actually make it work and come back through time? They never address that. You're just left to fill it in yourself. And I kind of like that. I actually enjoy that. And there's other questions from the, the third movie that I kind of enjoy having to fill it in myself and, and, and have my own headcanon. Then you take this movie... And it's completely opposite for me. There's so much of it that aggravates me that they didn't. And I, I don't need my hand held through everything. I don't need you to explain every single thing, but I have to see the dots in order to connect them. And yeah, sometimes yeah. with this movie, it's like they forgot to put the dot on the paper, you know? And, and so there's just too many gaps. And so it, it, it makes the story feel like, like it's just not, quite fully formed and and that's the biggest thing that holds it back for me is that it's it's there's there's aspects of it and i like the scope that it's going for but there's just aspects of it that's that make it feel shoddy if you know what i mean like it just wasn't quite fully formed and i don't know if that's a product of you know rushing to get it done or or what but it's just it's not quite the cohesive thing that I feel like the first three movies are. I feel like the first three are, despite their you know inconsistencies and their wonky continuity, I feel like they're still fully formed things that hold up really well. Whereas this one, not quite so much. And it's because of things like that. Just too many unanswered questions, too, too many blanks, if you know what I mean. Does the Zero and Cornelius theory um, help help uh, assuage a lot of that? It it does. It really does. Um, but but you know, that's I think that's part of my problem. You know, is that it, it takes 
this. You know, it takes sitting down with, <laughs> with like-minded people that enjoy these and, and kind of, you know, what do you guys think? Oh, well, I think that, okay, now that makes sense. Well, you know, the, the movie should, I, I feel like any movie should kind of be able to do that on its own as a thing in order to be considered, you know, good or successful or or whatever. You know, if, if it leaves you that many blanks to where it doesn't come together and you've got to spend, you know, 40 years trying to figure the damn thing out, then th- did it really work? I, I guess that's my issue with it, is that it it doesn't quite work. I want it to so bad because there is a lot I like in this movie. You know, there's some really wonderful character moments. I mean, Roddy McDowell's phenomenal in this. Oh, yeah. Um, it's but his movie. Just... And this is the first one that's his movie. Right. You right, know, right. And he, he, he's the he, second fiddle to, to Zero and the other, so absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, yeah. I, I can totally relate to what you're saying about that you shouldn't have to have – um, geek discussions and ancillary ma- materials to make it work. I uh, I remember when the Star Wars prequels came out, and there were things about each of the three movies I liked. And one of the biggest problems, though, that I had with it is I found that characters like Mace Windu were kind of boring. And I thought, how do you make Sam Jackson boring three times? That should not physically be possible. And right. at the time, um, I was actually doing writing for the Lucasfilm franchise, so I was reading a lot of stuff. And then I remember thinking to myself, I shouldn't have to read a ton of novels and comics to have a picture in my head of Mace Windu as a fully realized character. It should be that when I read these things, I go, that's something cool. I didn't know about him, but I already loved him. That's how it should work, because the average moviegoer isn't reading these things, right? Exactly. So I get what you're saying. That was my reaction. Like I wanted to like those three movies more but they didn't seem like they had fully realized characters. So I, I could see what you're saying, that, that without an, an a, without there being any logical reason how apes could be waiters and, and actually cook and, uh, and so forth and do shoe shining. These are not things modern-day apes can do in 2021, let alone 1991. Um, so I could see why, if, if there was no way to explain this, that the whole movie would fall apart. I, I get that. Well, see, I, I think it is a, a – not – to to an extent, I think it's a little. Your mileage may vary, and your mileage may vary on the extent to which you're willing to kind of just go with it. Um, yeah, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to be logical, and if you want to apply it to modern day, there is no way that you could train apes to do this. I don't care that the cats and dogs are gone. There's no <laughs> way to do it. Now, right. when you add in your your supposition about Cornelius and Zero bringing that virus. That changes that, but that it that requires you to actually, you know, to actually sit there and and cognitively put together a, a, a logical sequence. The other option is, and sadly, I'm unsophisticated enough to have to cop to this, is when when Caesar gives the story and he just says they were surprised at all the things that these apes could do, and and they, and and you know they they started to take advantage of it. That you just sit there and you say, okay, I'm going to accept that and I'm not going to give it any further thought. <laughs> and over the years, I kind of, you know, did fall into that group where, where it was just like, all right, that's what he says. I'm going to just run with it. That's his explanation. Okay it was overly thing. simplistic. It was not reasonable, but I just ran with it anyway. Just so you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm totally okay with that explanation too. The truth is, 
that um, there's not a, a classic Planet of the Apes film I don't love. I, I've always loved Conquest, even before I had seen the extended version. I've always loved it. And um, I thought the ending just comes out of nowhere and is a disaster. But I loved the rest of the movie. So for me, I was always okay. I was always okay with um, just buying into the premise of all five movies, even though they really don't jive. Like, you know, you go from 3978 to 3955 to 3950, you go from the revolution is hundreds of years later to 18 years, you know, like they, they, they don't jive. There's just no way to make them jive. And I never cared. And the reason was I enjoyed all five of them so much. So whether the answer is just simply, uh, it just is accepted or, uh, Zero and Cornelius brought it back, and here's a whole chain of events the movie's never mentioned. <laughs> Either way, I'm okay with it simply because I love these films. Yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> with you on that, and and I like I said, I always kind of had the head cannon that that uh they changed the the you know the past when they came back, and that's how I you know because because otherwise the whole story about Aldo being the first one to say no really until I was able to come up with that head cannon that bothered me. You know, here's what here's what the, the thing that's interesting is that Paul Dane, who wrote the four sequels, really has is on the record as saying he believed he was writing a circular timeline, not a changed one. So, from an just just strictly from um, an academic exercise, I think that can be made to happen by assuming that the sacred scrolls are a lie. It's that simple. Because the apes in the first movie believe that the Sacred Scrolls are 1,200 years old. They've eliminated all history before 1,200 years. So if that's the case, the story that we hear in, um, in, in Escape can still have happened. It happened before the scrolls were written, right? But that being said, I still don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. I think the altered timeline is very clearly what's going on in the film. With all due respect to Paul Dane, who wrote them, uh, I think that if his intention was to make a circular timeline, I'm not sure he succeeded. And I, I say that as a person who loved what he wrote, but I don't think the movies reflect a circular timeline. In my opinion, they reflect an altered timeline. And I think he's, I think he's on the record saying that every time he wrote one, he thought it was going to be the last one. Yeah. He also he he wrote it in the 60s and, you know, in the early 70s. So he wasn't he wasn't um, he didn't have ready access to pop a DVD. And so the, the mistakes that and neither did the audience. Right. So the mistakes that we now see from obsessing, the, the, the average moviegoer might not have ever seen never noticed this because they may not have recalled. 3955, 3978, how many years in the future Aldo existed. This stuff. Nobody in 1971, 72 was expecting the home video scene that you and I have, that the three of us have. So um, uh, I think it, a lot can be excused by the fact that they simply were not psychic. It <laughs> could not possibly. Well, I, I also think that the producers and the writers and directors and the actors never anticipated that this was going to be picked apart by people in their 50s because yeah. I think they intended these to be watched mostly by people in their uh, either pre-teens or early teens. I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah. And e e <laughs> heck, even Pierre Bull, who wrote the novel, wasn't fond of his own novel. Like even he didn't have enough faith that we would ever end up at this point. So yeah, I agree with you. Uh, 
so, you know, I'm just trying to think of what other points, you know, I made some notes and I left them somewhere else and I don't even have them in front of me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think an interesting point. I want to hear what you guys have to say. I've always been strangely fascinated by one scene in the movie that's really easy not to even notice is happening other than as a gag. But the ramifications are massive. And here it is. At one point, Caesar goes and spends weeks in the breeding annex. That means that by the time of battle, there's, there could potentially be hundreds of Caesar's children, and battle never references this. <laughs> so, like, and, you know, if, he, if he's intent on starting a revolution, and if he knows he's kind of the prototype, mm-hmm. it would behoove him yes. to plant his seed in as many of the female apes as he can. Which is funny, though, because he then, like, the, the same, you know... They're they're really inconsistent on how much time passes inside of uh, in inside of uh, the the movie. If you read the the, the scripts and the book and the, watch the film, like it's a little inconsistent. I'm not even entirely sure how much time is supposed to pass, but it's a short amount of time. So even if he went crazy and in two days had sex with thirteen chimpanzees, he still wouldn't have an army in his lifetime. Um, <laughs> but that be especially if he's going to have the revolution on day two. <laughs> but but um. But in any case, I, I've always wondered why it, none um, none of the spinoff material uh, has ever dealt with bastard offspring of, of Caesar. And I'm surprised because that's an entire plot. But OK, I'll, I'll let you guys in on something, too. There, there was a uh, um, earlier on Scott made reference to the short fiction. And I don't know if Scott's aware, but I'm actually the yet the co-editor of, of the the. the um, the book of short of a plan of the ape short fiction that was that was published and oh, okay <laughs> um, yeah, that's why i was laughing when you when you mentioned it before but i wasn't you know i wasn't going to plug it except that that's jim jim beard and i are the ones who spearheaded that so um there, we had a second was book that the was that the tales from the forbidden zone? zone yeah that's our baby yeah oh, that's a great book yeah thank yeah. you very much and um so uh, we had a second book lined up, and and Steve Saffel at Titan wanted to do it, and it just it just sort of fell through because short fiction anthologies are a hard sell in today's market. But I already knew what I was going to write about in the second book, and it was going to involve the bastard offspring of Caesar, <laughs> <laughs> and multiple like mo- mo- like it was I was going to deal with the ramifications of 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 what um of what Caesar spending time in the breeding annex would mean decades down the line and I, I wish i'd gotten a chance to write it but it, you know it didn't <laughs> in the film is that female ape is that lisa well it's not the same actor so i'm assuming no oh okay people i, I took it that it was lisa. it was lisa but it, yeah no, just, i, I just, had just trouble to... telling the female apes uh, apart from each other yeah <laughs> <laughs> just to uh to, to mention, I, I know we've mentioned it once before, but uh, Rich and I first became uh, acquainted with each other at the Bay Ridge Comic Con, where he, he and uh, Jim Beard had a table and were uh, My goodness, pe- peddling I, I, their wares. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh, you know we we it was it was kind of you know for whatever it's I don't know if it fits the small world description, but you know we had met at that convention and i had gone over to the table and we had engaged ourselves in a in in an enjoyable conversation and then didn't think about it again for whatever it was two three four years until i heard rich on zaki's uh, nostalgia theater and i was like wait a minute i know i met this guy (laughs) (laughs) 
So yeah, so now, uh, I, I did appreciate there for you plugging the short fiction, not knowing that it was me. So I that was that, that was a fun. <laughs> I was like, and I'm like, do I get cocky and, and 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 claim it, or do I say nothing? And I was gonna I was gonna say nothing except that the breeding annex came up, and I'm like, now's my time. I can mention it. Yeah. You took the middle ground. That's, that works. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Ricardo Montalban's performance in this because Ricardo Montalban, I've never seen him in anything where he didn't chew up the scenery. He he is an over-the-top actor in in virtually every definition of the word or the term. Yes, but, but he the, but he's, he's un, unique to me in that he's yeah. uh, he he's been the most villainous and the most likable. Uh, chewing up the scenery guy in separate performances that I think I got to tip my hat to him and say he, he did great. Uh, and in both performances, obviously I'm talking about him as Armando and him as Khan. Uh, in both performances, I think it called for chewing up the scenery. Uh, there, there are performances that call for underplaying it and being calm and, and just, you know, giving your lines. I do not think he would be effective in this role, and I don't think he would be as likable in this role if he had done that. Um, I don't know, Paul, if I've ever mentioned this to you, but um, not long before um, Ricardo died, I, I spent a couple hours interviewing him. Did I ever tell you about this? No, you had not. And I'm, I'm fascinated to hear it. He might be the nicest celebrity I've ever spoken to. Back, back then, I was I was writing for the Star Wars and Star Trek magazine, so I, I, I had I just was really lucky to be interviewing a lot of people and things that were in shows and movies I enjoyed and it was such a fun ride and uh but the 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 crowning moment for me was being asked to interview Ricardo Montalban because if ever there was a person the word uh sweetheart would would mat you like you wouldn't think so given characters like Khan and Rourke and so forth but he was such a sweetheart of a guy what a nice person he was and I had been told by his rep um, you know, he, I don't know if, you know, he lived in constant pain. He had suffered back injuries when he was younger because he was a very physical actor and he had, he, he had, uh, he had suffered injuries and was living on, on pain management. And his, um, his rep told me just so you know, it's probably only going to be 15 minutes. It's very difficult for Ricardo to do this. And then I couldn't get off the phone with him. We were on the phone for two and a half hours because <laughs> he kept saying, <laughs> you know, um, he, he kept calling me Richard, uh, and he kept saying, "Richard, I am so enjoying this. I hope you don't mind if I if I ask you questions." Like it was funny. Like he, he reversed it, and but he was such a kind-hearted person to talk to, and and um, so grateful that fans liked him. That was the thing that was interesting. He was so humble, uh, and and he had given us you know three really iconic characters, and he was still amazed and humble that people knew who he was. Um, and uh, had nothing but praise for every single person he ever worked with. And then at the the funniest moment for me was at the end of the conversation, when I think his rep was probably going, "Dude, you're in pain. Let's 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 end this." <laughs> uh, and um, and he said, "Okay, before I go, I must ask you something that's been sitting in the back of my mind the whole time we've been talking. And keep in mind, you hear what my voice sounds like, and that I had said it was two and a half hours, right?" He said. <laughs> Are you from Britain? <laughs> and there was like this, this pause moment where I, I oh, was like, boy. "That is not at all the question I was expecting." So I don't know how. To, <laughs> and I and I sort of laughed. I said, "Well, my ancestors were, but that was hundreds of years ago." <laughs> and, uh, and he he said, "Ah, 
because I was trying to place your accent, and I swore you had to be from England. And that just <laughs> fascinated me for because I don't think that anybody would ever think I sound like I'm from Britain. So I was wondering what was I doing, you know, in the conversation. Was I affecting a British accent, or was he just hearing me different? I, I don't know. It always that moment fascinated me. I don't. I, don't, I never did. I never did. I wasn't going to pursue that because the last thing I want to do is end the conversation with "What are you crazy?" <laughs> but because he was such a nice guy, you know. But that 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 moment always amuses me when I tell it because that was the last. If if you. If, if, if like the Terminator, if a list of 10 things that were going to come up in front of my eye, here's what Ricardo's about to ask you. Are you from Britain was not on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy hearing that he was such a nice guy, though, because, you know, we hear more often than not when people who we admire for, you know, whatever fame they have are not nice. And it's so much easier to publicize it when they do things that are not nice that it's just it, it makes me feel good when you find out that somebody who you, you know, who you respect and who you whose yeah. whose work you've enjoyed over the years turns out to be every bit as nice as you'd hope they are. Well, so I'm really happy to hear that you'd from the movies said the same thing about him that he you know, like that I'm saying like they just they adored him. And um, I and. For the same article, I, I um, interviewed Judson Scott, who had played Joaquin, and it, there was such hero worship audible in in in, um, in Judson's voice. Like he just adored this man, and and I just got this feeling from talking to him and from talking to Nick Meyer and a few others that everybody on the set just were in awe of how nice um, Ricardo Montalban was. So I don't even think he was putting an air on with me. I think that really was the way he was, and it was gratifying because. You know, like the, the three of us, we've all been doing this long enough to know that there are people in the industry you meet and then you never enjoy them again because there are some people that are not they do not live up to what you think they're going to be like. So I was very glad that I was able to find out that he was just such a joy of a person. Is there somewhere that that interview is easily available to us? Sadly, no. Um, years ago, I had a. Um, I had a basement flood and my box of all of my cassette tapes uh, from back when I was doing all this was destroyed. And that kills me. Like I can't even begin to tell you how, how painfully, how painful it was to realize this, but the magazine, uh, the article itself appears in an issue of Star Trek communicator. I don't recall offhand which one, but it was a, an issue that celebrated a, an anniversary of Star Trek two, which should probably help you, um, um, narrow it down. Like you could, I, I just don't remember which one it was, but it was um, Nicholas Meyer, Judson Scott, and and and, and Ricardo Montalban. But then for other issues, I interviewed people who were in the movies, and they all just they were they were like, oh. And then I got to work with Ricardo Montalban. What a great guy! So like everybody had nice things to say about him. That's that's terrific. Yeah. From what I understand, the people on the uh, on the set of. Um, Oh my goodness! I'm drawing. Don't don't you hate when like you know like so you, like words don't come to you even though you clearly should know them. Um, that's, that's my my Steve Martin line right. where he talks <laughs> about being comedian. Some people have a way with words, and others oh not have way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I'm drawing a blank. Ah, at the end of his life, he played the grandfather of. Um, he was in a wheelchair, and he he he. Um, Spy Kids. Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. I was about to, oh, kids yeah, watch yeah. that. You know what's really funny? I was about to say, I can't think of the name of the movie, but there were these Spy Kids. He was the grandfather. <laughs> I'm like, you idiot. You were just about to say the movie's name. Anyway, 
Um, I remember my kids watching that. The movie was awful. <laughs> true, but from what I understand, the people on that set loved him too. Like I, I just think I'm sure they did. Die. Yeah. So is before we rate this, is there any other aspect of the movie that we failed to hit on that we should touch on? Yes. Oh. Okay. Are you going to hit on the score? You know, you know me. Well, but, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give you my opinion of the score because I did have that in my notes that I didn't have in front of me. <laughs> That's where I was going. Uh, I thought this score was confusing as hell, to be honest with you. I think it went from the annoying 70s craziness that they're trying to convey the craziness that you would never in a million years want to listen to in your car. Uh, to very generic music. I did not care for the score in this movie. It's the one aspect of the movie that, that if I had to rate it, I was going to rate it poorly. Now I want to hear your opinion because you may totally disagree well, with me. <laughs> no, it's funny because I really anticipated you asking me about the score because you know I'm the score guy and you always ask me about the film scores. And so I had a prepared answer of, well, the only Tom Scott that I know of is Tom Scott from the Blues Brothers. So I looked this guy up. This is Tom Scott from the Blues Brothers. Oh, wow. That's who he is. So I was shocked to discover that because I think the world of the Blues Brothers, I had all their albums growing up and I, I thought they were really good and I enjoyed, you know, Tom Scott's contributions and all. Um, I do not enjoy this score. And you know me, for me, the score is a huge part of, of any movie. There are movies that I love primarily because I really enjoy the score. They may be terrible films, but if I really, really like the score, then my estimate of the film generally goes way up. Um, but conversely, if it's a shitty score, then a lot of times that really knocks the movie down for me a lot. Uh, you know, I, I had a friend uh, many years ago who was greatly annoyed to the fact that he ended up snapping off the movie. He he was trying to get me for years to sit down and watch this favorite movie of his. And I want to say it was Lady Hawk, I think. And the score was so shit. And I kept mocking it to a point. He just ended up snapping it off in disgust. He's like, that's it. We're not watching this together. Um, yeah, annoying is is a great word to use because there's a lot of the score in this that's really, really annoying and confusing. Um, there's a moment, I'm trying to remember when it is. I think it's when they first go down, when, when they first take Caesar down into like the ape, like conditioning area, like the training area with the guy with I the I think that's where they had the 70s that. crazy music. Yeah, it's just referencing. And it's going like, that is a weird scene. Yeah, it's going like, it's really bizarre. And that coupled with just the the garish outfits and the weird Batman lighting and the kind of just cheesy feel of the scene, it's those kind of moments that that affect my overall feeling of the movie I, I hate to say that because i hate to be down on a movie just because it has a low budget but it, it, it's that combination of factors and yeah tom scott i don't know what the hell he was going for because there's moments in in certain and it's it's not very often in the movie but there are a couple of moments where i feel like he's either going for 
a Jerry Goldsmith experimental vibe, or he's playing a little safer and trying to go with more like a Leonard Rosenman type of thing. Although I don't think much of Rosenman score for beneath either, but neither one works. And I can't off the top of my head, think of a single moment in the movie where I think he effectively scored it. I, I most of the scoring he does throughout the whole movie just comes off as just wrong. It doesn't fit the mood or it's, as you say, it's either annoying or confusing. So yeah, I, I it's a terrible score and I, I don't, I, I don't really know what he was going for. And I'm really curious what rich thinks Cause I feel so, I feel like I'm dumping on Rich's movie and I feel so bad. Oh, just so we're clear, this is, you know, None of these are my movies. I'm a spectator like the rest of you. So, like, never feel like you <laughs> apologize for your opinion. I, I'm one of, like, five people in the world who, who thought District 9 was terrible. And I, I own the fact that that's on me because everyone else loved it. So, you know, like, it is what it is. Uh, you know, um, but I totally would get why, if the score didn't work for you, why that would kill the movie. Because I'm like you in that regard. Um a great score will elevate what might have been mediocre material and a terrible yes. score will knock down something that wasn't like I for, Terminator is great anyway, but I firmly believe a lot of the reason Terminator is so effective is the score. And, oh, hell yeah. 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 And, and so there's certain yeah. movies where you go that stands out. And the first Planet of the Apes movie comes to mind. And then you get to this one and I've I've often wondered. Oh, I'll just say right up front, it's my least favorite of the five scores. So I'm I'm with you on this. I I don't think it's as a total disaster because I, I'm very forgiving with these movies. But um, but that's just because I'm making excuses for it. It's not a good score. Uh, I, I I've tried to sometimes to figure out why after three you know pretty damn good scores, what happened with this one? And I the only thing I can come up with is that he's being discordant on purpose. Like it's it's meant to get on your nerves because this I is think a, it is yeah this, I think this, you're exactly right but right? it does get on my nerves it, just, it get on, gets on your nerves but <laughs> I think it's on purpose I think that I, and I'm not saying it's effective but I think the idea is that you're supposed to be uncomfortable um, right. if you have a sweeping scope uh, to music you know something that flows well it might make you less uncomfortable and you're supposed to be uncomfortable because this is a movie about slavery and I think that I, that I totally. Yeah, I you know I totally get what you're saying, and I completely agree with you. However, yeah, there however, are masters out there that could make it work, and I immediately think of Bernard Herrmann because that was kind of Hitchcock's mandate to to Bernard Herrmann with Psycho is make people uncomfortable. And yeah, yeah. damn if he didn't during that that shower sequence. But I can listen to e e e e all day long. I can't listen to this score to to apes, you know, to conquest on its own. It's it is discordant and uncomfortable, but in a very uh, negative way. So it, it's it's one of those things where it's like you've got Bernard Herrmann that's like annoy them. Hey, great job. And then you've got Tom Scott annoy them. And it's like, ooh, yeah, you you annoyed me, dude. I hate this. You know, so. there, there is. There, I will say this, though. The opening music I actually quite like where it says 1991 North America and you see the apes being led through and then Caesar and, and, and Armando show up. I like the music in that. And then after that, I think it starts to fall apart. But like, you know, you're each of our mileage is going to vary. I, I, I am. 
very behind your thesis that it is a letdown in terms of music. I, but, I, you know, just just to kind of add to it a little bit, uh, uh, you know, I, I, or to repeat, uh, there there is the the music that is intentionally making you uncomfortable, and I understand the purpose, and it does make me uncomfortable, but it also grates on me, so that's why it fails as far as I'm concerned. But the rest of the music in it, when it's not meant to make you uncomfortable still felt very generic to me. It didn't sure. feel like it was, you know, it almost felt like they were going to a score library and saying, yeah, this will fit, uh, as opposed to something that was carefully constructed to create a mood. Well, you know, you pointed out that he did um, that he did Blues Brothers. I, I, I don't know how old he was when he did this movie, but maybe he was young and they got him cheap. I mean, it may be that simple, right? It may be that he didn't have the experience yet. But and I, I, I agree with Scott, too, that I, I think virtually everything that the Blues Brothers were involved in uh, involved top-notch musicians. Yeah. So so it is a little surprising to hear that that he was involved in this. Yeah, yeah. I, I won't in any way uh, disagree with you guys that it's the weakest of the five um, um, scores. Now, that being said, I do periodically put it on just because – uh, because I work from home and it's it, you know it's quiet when you're sitting in a home office. There needs to be something on her. Just the, the quiet gets to you. And so while I'm writing, the, I tend to okay, <laughs> I tend to pick music that matches the the motif of what I'm writing about. So if I'm writing about something, either Planet of the Apes itself or something else post-apocalyptic, I will tend to put on a Planet of the Apes soundtrack while I'm working. And uh, right. sometimes it's this one. It's usually not. It's usually one of the first three. Um, but, uh, I do occasionally listen to this one and I do find myself chuckling at the, at some of the really weird choices. What's really funny is that I, I don't know this for a fact, but, but having a good ear for these type of things, I, I feel pretty confident in saying that I think that there are some definite callbacks and references to this score in Michael Giacchino's score to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, particularly when the apes ride on horseback into the city to confront the humans for the very first time, I would swear that there's some direct references to this score. And that's pretty neat to me, because I, I think the world of Michael Giacchino, I think he's an incredible composer. So I, I thought that was kind of classy of him to kind of incorporate the, the feel of this score into his score. No, I'm going to have to listen to that next time I watch that movie. I think it's definitely on purpose. I mean, as as I think it was Zachy who mentioned before, the, the, the new movies are basically the story of Escape Through Battle retold. Oh, yeah. And, and there are references to all three of them all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Actually, that. there's references to all five of them because there's also a guy named Dodge Landon. <laughs> but... but uh, <laughs> But uh, you know, there, and, and Maurice, and so forth. So there, there's, 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 and, and Rodman, obviously, you know, um, and uh, and so there's references all over. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of parallels between the, the new movies and the three sequels that came at the end. So I find the fact that um, I find the fact that Zachy said when he when when he was it Reeves that he said he was talking to, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, he had said, "Would you want a, a, a remake of the original?" I always found it fascinating that he started with three, films three through four, five because I figured, well, he's going to do the opposite of what was originally done. I figured next will come Planet and Beneath. 
And um, but if he does it, I don't want a remake. I I would want a new story. I mean, we've you know, <laughs> I was kind of chuckling before when he said, well, we already had the best version of Planet in my head. I was going and we had the worst version of Planet. <laughs> 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 and uh, we don't need a third version, you know, um, because I, yeah. I think it would be hard to top it. So the, so. But if you look at these three movies as, as a parallel to the others, the question in both cases comes, well, what would have happened next? In the case of the new movies, we're going to thankfully find out. Um, my story in Tales from Forbidden Zone is actually what was it was about, because unlike Scott, I'm a fan of battle. <laughs> so I actually wrote a sequel to that movie in that book. Um, and so because I, I, I find that Caesar's era to be the most interesting one, uh, which not every but not every fan would say, but. Um, conquest and battle to me. I just the, the the character of Caesar is probably it's probably my favorite character from the original films. I think conquest and Caesar, from a creative point of view, probably are the most fertile ground to be, you know, to to come up with stories for. Uh, and I think that's why you know Reeves thought and sounds like you know sounds like just about everybody was in agreement that that you could just stick in between battle and you know the timeline where you get to planet of the apes yeah. never actually reach planet of the apes and just you could put out story after story after story and never get to the point where taylor lands hell this could be the next mcu i mean you could do tv shows there's so much you could do without ever reaching that scene because it's 2000 years there's so much potential uh to to, to grow this into something yeah yeah, well, there's uh, there's this book out there that I find fascinating that I purchased that gives you a whole breakdown of, of where you can go with the storylines and everything. Uh, it's called Timeline of the Planet of the Apes. It was written by this guy, Rich Handley. I've heard of that. Uh, <laughs> that I have sitting on my bookshelf right behind me. But you know, I, I say that as a joke and as a plug for you. Uh, Funny thing <laughs> is, but, was the first apes book that I worked on, and uh, I, I would do things differently now. Enough time has passed that I, in hindsight, I would do that book differently. <laughs> well, in, in enough enough time has passed that there's a lot more information that you can now incorporate. Yeah, yeah. But but just the same, I, I do find I did find it as I was paging through it and reading it. I found it fascinating to kind of see where everything could go, and and there, there is so much. And you know, you you've obviously uh you know worked with the the comics and everything and scott and i have been big fans of the comics but just the multitude of books that are out there show you how many stories that can be you know uh, pulled out of this Uh, and and a lot of them really really solid and i think uh you know severely underappreciated well, Scott alluded to what my favorite uh, my favorite story from the um, from the adventure comics line, which was a, a direct tie-in. Um, it's the story it's the story of the guy who got the shoe shine on his sock. Now, if, if, if ever you had told me somebody was going to write a story about a guy whose foot appears in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, I would have said, okay, that's ridiculous, and it's my favorite issue of the whole run. So there's that's the one we covered, right, Scott? With where it ends yeah, with yeah. Uh, with the ape in the house. Yeah, yeah you know, basically Carson McCormick, and he's a writer for Ape Management Publications, and uh, and so you follow the events of Conquest from his standpoint, you know. So you right. you, you hear like things in the loudspeaker, you can tell where the movie is and so forth, and it's it's about his his inner turmoil over the fact that he truly believes apes are to be feared. But he also wrestles with the fact that he's not an unkind person. And meanwhile, he's got his 
wife wanting extra house apes. And and so he and he's got his boss who, you know, his bosses are Culp, Culp and Breck. So he uh, he's torn and he's torn. And then at the end, he's literally torn because <laughs> these these pamphlets that he uh, that he's been putting out, how to, you know, discipline your ape. I, I forget what the titles are, um, but they come like back. That, to, yeah. Yeah. They come back to haunt him. And but my thing, the thing that sells that issue for me is the fact that it all hinges on the fact that he has handed one of Milo's um, flyers. And he starts thinking about the fact that the, the circus is basically a dead art form, which ties into the idea that there's a reason Armando was forced to bring him on this flyer tour. That uh, and He's like, wow, a circus? I haven't seen one of these since I was a kid. And he starts thinking back to, to this. And it... it, it um, it resonates throughout the story, the idea that, that he misses the circus. And then in the end, a circus, uh, uh, animals inspired by the arrival of a circus animal to kill him because of, of what his kind has done to them. And I just think it's poetic and it's beautiful. And it shows that there's, uh, there's so much potential for short stories like that to be told, you know, these little vignettes to be told in the Planet of the Apes mythos. Yeah, I, I remember Absolutely. reading that one and yeah. covering that. And not only is it, beautifully written but it's also like a little bit chilling when mm-hmm. you read it you oh, know? Yeah. It, it's, yeah. so it, it was it was very 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 well done the uh, art but typically on that series that was black it, and white was, wasn't it yeah that yeah it was oh, and most of it was art a couple that, of minis in color but most most of the stories but the, 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 the monthly series was black and white and then most of the minis were too but there were a couple of color stories oh that's right yeah like yeah when we when we covered that stuff, this was quite a while ago, but when we covered that stuff, we did a what we call an Apes Month. So it was four or five weeks worth of shows, you know, like like one show a week for four or five weeks. And we covered the different Apes incarnations by different companies. So, you know, we had Marvel, we had Adventure, we had the Revolution stuff. I wish and, I'd, I wish I'd know, like been part of it that I would have loved to be in on those. So if you ever do that again, let me know. <laughs> we could oh, be convinced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that's my, uh, that's that's my big thing. passion, you know. Like, I have every single comic published, including a lot of rare stuff that people don't know about. So like I had a lot of fun. Uh uh I have a lot of fun reading or listening to people talking about the comics. It's my it, that's that's my personal passion. So well, I'm, I'm going to say, Rich, uh, I, I would love if you'd lo- if you'd go back and listen to what we did. Yeah. Uh, but but also, if you give us you know any ideas of what you'd like to cover, you are absolutely invited on to back to the bins yeah, to cover I'd them. Love, I'd oh, love to do that. I, I would really like to do the. I mean, I'm, we talked about them, at, you know, kind of broad overview type of thing. But I would love to do like actual breakdowns of the different incarnations of the the Apes films, you know, the the adaptations that Marvel did because. They're all very different, and uh, and I think they're wonderful. I think they're really well done, and I didn't know about them until just a few years ago. I knew about the first movie because there was actually the comic series called Adventures on the Planet of the Apes that ran, I don't know, like nine issues or something like that, that covered, I think, the first and maybe part yeah. of the second movie. It was, it was I, 11 issues, and it was a reprint of uh, – it was a colorized reprint of of the adaptations of the first two movies that ran in the Marvel magazine. Right, right. And, and, so and I and, never and, knew that they did because I didn't have access to the magazine. 
Yeah. I never knew that they did adaptations of the other films as well. And those are beautiful. I mean, they're so well done. So, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll start off with covering this movie. Yeah. Because we've already agreed that we're going to do that. But I have no problem with going back and covering all of them. What's really yeah. fascinating as those adaptations went on is that – oops, sorry. I, don't, I just made a big noise here. I'm dropping something. It sounded like you opened, you popped a bottle of champagne. No, I actually <laughs> a, uh, an empty bottle off my desk, and it, it decided to hit the one spot that didn't have uh, carpet, so it <laughs> it was loud. Uh, but in any case, uh, where was I going? Oh yeah, as the as the adaptations went on, they they um they started doing some fun experimentation with them instead of because they had older versions. Like basically back then, Fox gave them whatever they gave them. They didn't always give them. The, you know the, the, all, all the resources they needed, and in the case of the uh, the later films, they had earlier draft scripts, and they decided let's have some fun with it, let's adapt these, and so you get to you know you, you get to battling, and, and Breck is the villain, not Culp. You know it's just wild, you know, uh, because they used a version of the script where where he didn't leave, uh, so so or, or, and that Caesar is losing all of his hair from radiation. I mean it's wild to see these differences, um, particularly for the conquest and and battle. Um, adaptations which really you know they add a lot to the movies and change a lot too well i'm looking forward to, to looking at that stuff anew because it, it's been a little while since i've read it but i remember really really enjoying it when i discovered them well you know i don't the uh, i don't know if you i mean they're hard to find these days but um if you can't find the 29 issues of marvel uh boom put out a four book series that reprinted all of them um right but if right. you can't you can't, I mean, those are expensive, and at, for full disclosure, I worked on those. I should point that out so I don't sound like I'm plugging something. But um, but the, the truth is that they are they do it. They did a great job of of, re, of repackaging them. And um, but the truth is, you can also find them at, at Hunter's Planet of the Apes archive, which makes it easier if you don't have the magazines. Okay, good good to know. I'm going to pull us back to Conquest now before we have to close up for the night here uh and ask you guys where where do you personally rank it on the jaw scale uh, um i have to think about it so scott why don't you go first <laughs> uh-oh um i've wrestled with this one a lot uh where i was going to place this um i would give two different uh ratings to the two different uh versions of the film but going going really with the one that's that's become my default uh on the movie which is the the unrated one i i do think a lot more of it um than i ever thought of the movie before you know having seen the unrated version uh, i i do think it's it's so much better um, especially just the, the tone of it, the way it ends, uh, the violence, all, you know, I'm not usually big on a whole lot of violence in movies, especially really bloody, you know, violence, but it works for this movie. It, it, it is what the movie needs for the tone of the movie. Um, but unfortunately the two biggest things I've always thought worked against this movie remain with whichever cut of the movie that you see which is the budget there's just simply no escaping the fact that you know they filmed this movie for like a buck 50 you know and it and it shows in everything it shows in the costumes it shows in uh the ape masks uh frankly i think it shows in the performances of 
the non Roddy McDowell ape characters because they're just, I guess they're just extras or something that they got. So a lot of them are either just kind of slumping through like zombies or they're way over the top, you know, hopping around like monkeys. And so they don't seem particularly ape like a lot of times. They just seem like, like just kind of being crazy. Um, and there's a lot of other things the kind of weird Batman lighting in some of the scenes. And um, there's just a lot of that stuff. And, and again, I'm, I, I feel like, you know, almost hypocritical because I'm usually, I, I have a high tolerance for that sort of thing. I mean, I'm a, I'm a classic Star Trek fan for God's sakes. You know, you talk about cheesy and low budget, there you go. But there's, there's something about this one where it's, some of it is just a bridge too far. It's just a little too cheesy. And I think part of that is because um, I, it, it always used to irk me when I would meet somebody that wasn't an apes fan and try to introduce them to Planet of the Apes. And they'd have that reaction of, ew, you know, and I'm like, what do you mean, ooh? you know, have you tried it? Because it's really good stuff. And then when they would, you know, if it was the first movie or the third movie and they they actually gave it a chance, they would generally be really won over by it. And I think it's because, yes, it may be a little silly on the surface of, oh, it's talking apes. That's really goofy. But once you get to watching it, you understand there's a, there's an earnestness and there's a verisimilitude of the universe that really works. And it gets you past the makeup and some of the sillier aspects and get you involved in the story of the ape. I think that's why we all became fans of this franchise is that very thing. This movie somehow doesn't quite do that. And and I'm it pains me to say that, but I I do feel like ultimately it kind of fails in that because the the cheesy outweighs the verisimilitude and the sincerity. That it they just can't escape it. It's just they reach that tipping point between you know me really wanting to still be able to see past things and really embrace this because i love the franchise and the inescapable well it's shot on a really low budget and so it kind of looks like crap and unfortunately it does tip the other way on on this particular one there's just no escaping that um, the other big thing that for me personally really works against the movie, and I'm so sorry, Rich, because you you praised this earlier, and I'm sorry to dump on yeah, you. Yeah, but, but I'm not the person. Uh, you don't know me to apologize. <laughs> is, I, I don't uh, My name isn't Rich Planet of the Apes, you know. So go for it. Yeah. <laughs> is uh, Don Murray's performance as Breck, and I feel bad saying that because watching Don Murray in this, the bonus features on DVD, uh, you know, he's a, he's obviously many years older and everything. He seems like a wonderful guy. You know, yeah, he seems great. really likable and very sweet and everything. But in the movie, he's just ridiculous. He's so over the top. And I mean, I know he's supposed to be in certain respects. He's supposed to be the the fascist nazi like you know screaming dictator type i get that but there's a way to do that and really make it work and then there's a way to do that and you just come off as completely ridiculous and too many times in the movie he comes off as just laughable um the one that always gets me is where um 
they're watching on the video monitor as the police are basically holding their own against the apes. And then all of a sudden, another wave of apes sneaks up on them from behind. And Breck just goes, oh, my God, there's more. And it's just his whole delivery. Because it's supposed to be this really heavy, weighty moment. But his delivery is just completely laughable. It just it just doesn't work. And there's he does that several times. And, you know, there, there there's only one or two moments with him that actually work for me. And strangely, it's when Caesar's being tortured. Breck is the one and I don't think I don't think he's supposed to be. But Breck is the one that actually looks like he's most upset by what's going on. And I find that really odd because he's the one that's making it happen. Yet he's the one that that I'm looking at and and realizing he's kind of tearing up a little bit. And I I don't I don't know where that fits with the performance or what he was supposed to be doing or anything. So Breck just. I know he 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 affects a lot of the scenes in the movie negatively for me. So it, he he's one of the biggest aspects that just doesn't work, unfortunately. So with all that in there, I mean, I want to love this movie. I so bad want to love it because I like what it's going for. But the scope of the movie is writing checks that the budget can't cash, unfortunately. So I, I got to call it like I see it. This is a Jaws 3 for me, and I so badly want it to be a Jaws 2, but it's just not. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm just less objective because of nostalgia and because of the love I've had of this movie uh, for, for many, many years. But while all your points are well-reasoned and well-thought-out, I reject, like, all of them. <laughs> uh, okay. you know you know i i i, I sat there I, I earlier said i i thought considering all things considered uh i thought they did a a better job with the makeup in this than than they had in the previous ones so that in and of itself is is disagreeing to some extent with uh you know with with uh your premise about that uh i thought i thought despite the low budget they were able to get by in many ways because of the fact that they had this, uh, you know, this, this, this futuristic mall that they could film on and, and save a lot of their money with that. Uh, and, and really the only major payouts they had to make probably were with regard to makeup. Uh, you know, it's not an especially special effects laden movie, I guess, except for like some of the fire scenes in it. Um, I thought I thought the story was really solid. I thought, you know, again, there were awesome things that you have to uh, kind of mind, you know, mind cannon yourself uh, to get through it. But I, I thought the action sequences were compelling. I, as I did say, I do think the unedited version is superior to the edited version. But I do feel that the edited version fits more in the character of Caesar that we want to root for. Uh, but just the same, I, I'm, I'm rating this on the unrated version because I do think it's a better movie. I think, I think the violence is called for, for, you know, based upon the story that they're doing. I thought, like I said, the, the callbacks to racism were neither subtle nor, uh, you know, hit you over the head. I thought they were somewhere in the middle and I think that's exactly where it should have been. Uh, so that there's, there's a lot 
I thought there was a lot going on. And yes, maybe I have to agree with you that some of the extras didn't really do a good job of of you know really embracing their apehood. Uh, but I'm not sure it, it even called for that because your eyes were on Caesar all the time anyway. Uh, to me, you know, I, I I think it's a it's a solid Jaws two, like right right in the middle of the pack on Jaws two. It's it's not it's not wandering into Jaws territory, but to me, it's not falling into Jaws three either. I think it's a solid Jaws two. It's it's a movie that I could watch over and over again and have, uh, and that you know that that partially is is the definition of Jaws two is the its rewatchability, and I think this has very much. A lot of rewatchability. I watched it to do this show, and I, if you know, if my wife, if I went upstairs and my wife said she wanted to watch it, I'd watch it tonight without without a heartbeat's uh, delay, uh, and I and I would still enjoy it. Uh, so for me, it's it's a solid Jaws two, like like I said, just almost the definition of Jaws two. I guess it's my turn then. <laughs> um, You're all that's left in the room. Yeah. Uh, okay. First off, I, I think that Scott had some excellent points, um, and and yet I too also don't agree with with his uh, um, opinion of the film. But I think there's I think there's something to be said about the fact that a movie can have undeniable flaws and still be really enjoyable for personal reasons. And I think that that's what this movie is for me. When I was a kid watching these each year on the 4:30 movie, the one I looked most forward to was this one, strangely enough. Um, not because I thought it was best, but because I was the most compelled um, by the plight of Caesar and because of characters like Armando and McDonald. I was pulled into the story uh, and um, in, in a way that um, may, may not have been warranted by, the, by the, the film's quality compared to the others, but there was something about it that personally pulled me in. And so for me, this film stands the test of time. Um, I think that there are flaws, and I, I cannot, I cannot debate the the uh, the over the top nature of, of Don Murray's acting because while I enjoy Breck a lot, there is no there is no no, no sane person would say that that was a subdued per, uh, performance. And so uh, I do agree with Scott, even though I, I love the character of Breck. Now that being said. There are areas in which this film is clearly inferior to the other three, because while I enjoy Breck and while, unlike Zaki, I like Culp, none of, neither of these characters hold a candle to characters like, uh, you know, like Zaius or, or Ursus or Hasline. Th th those three villains are far more uh, intriguing to me. Uh, or the mutants, the Inquisitors. Uh, these characters are all more... Um, it, it, partly it's because of budget, but partly because it, it's because of performance. These characters make better villains than either of them from from the fourth and fifth films. So on that ground, the film does falter a bit. And yet I think, well, OK, I'll tell you something. During the pandemic, I um, I introduced a friend of mine to the films. He, his name is Tim and he'd never seen Planet of the Apes his whole life. He'd had this picture in his head. And I was thinking about this. Uh, with what you when you were mentioning about you know trying to show someone the film today, I actually did that last year. Uh, he always had this picture in his head that the apes were dopey because it was it was people in ape masks. He he expected them all, and he also he expected that the sequels would have quickly diminishing returns because science fiction sequels often do. You end up 
pretty quickly going from a great movie to a crap one. And um, and so he never wanted to watch him because he figured by the time he got to the third one, he would basically be watching the equivalent of uh, Beyond Westworld. Right. You know, like he figured there's just no point. Uh, if it's going to be if it's going to be as bad as something like Beyond Westworld. So uh, so he was surprised while watching these with me that he loved all five of them. Not to, not not that they're not that they're equal films, but that each film was unique. And that's the thing that I love about this movie, but that I love about all of them. If you look at the five, the first one is about religious dogmatism and the idea of of um, of a misanthrope finding himself in a world in which humans don't matter anymore. And what would be the effect on the psyche of a misanthrope, a person who hates humans when he ends up in a world where they're at the bottom of the rung. And then the question becomes, well, who's the villain? Is it mankind that created this world or the apes who are, who, who are uh, ensuring it stays this way? You get to the second one where they just go completely bonkers with the, with the, the anti-nuclear paranoia where there are now psychics with, with pizza faces and nobody and worshiping a bomb, which is so tonally different than the second one. The third one takes place in the present day and it's a goofy comedy and it's wonderful. And you get to the fourth one and it's about the civil rights movement and you get to the fifth one and it's a great bookend to the first because the first is about pessimism and the fifth one is about optimism. The idea, can humans and apes rise above this cycle or will they maintain it? To me, the reason these five films all work to various degrees, because they're, you know, they're not, they're not created equally is that they stand alone as unique. And in terms of science fiction or horror or fantasy sequels, that in itself is pretty unique. It's very rare that you see a, f a series of five classic in, uh, in movies in a big franchise where they're all completely different movies, setting aside for the fact that the first half hour of beneath is a retelling of planet. I get that, but putting that aside, <laughs> You know, that they um, it's remarkable, even with the dollar fifty budget that they had on the masks and so forth. It's remarkable to me the lengths that they went to to tell a completely different story each time. They could have just repeated what came before. But if you look at Planet and Conquest, they're so tonally different. Right. And uh, and for me, that's that's one of the reasons why I admire the film, because even at the fourth film level. They were going out of their way to create something unique, something that still had a message worth hearing. It, they, they weren't going with Superman for the quest for peace, which is another fourth film, right? They were, they, they were, they were telling a, a, they were creating a message and and taking it seriously, not turning it into Nuclear Man, right? Like there was no, you know, racism ape. There was no character who stood for racism, you know, and he was called racism ape, like 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 Nuclear Man. Like they took the subject matter <laughs> seriously. And to me, that's pretty admirable. That being said, the film does look cheap. It does have a weak score compared to the first three. Um, and although they did an admirable job of blocking it to hide the fact that it takes place at a mall, it pretty obviously takes place at a mall. Um, <laughs> and so all of these things work against it. In terms of whether I think... <laughs> where I think it falls in jaw scale, I'm going to run into the same problem. I don't know if you recall this from the earlier ones. I'm not a Jaws fan. <laughs> I, I gave that disclaimer then. I think I understand that first. The first film is 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 the pinnacle. The second one, it's rewatchable but not as good. And then they just fall to crap after that. So with that in mind, um, 
I'm going to say well, just just to, just to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. You know, once again, you don't have to be a fan of Jaws or even agree with the ratings to place them on the scale because the scale is not necessarily indicative of the movies. Right, because right. in in reality, Jaws three and Jaws four would both be ranked as Jaws four if I were ranking yes, them. Exactly. The, the truth. Right. So yeah. so it's 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 really just you know I'm just using that as kind of a metaphor of sorts. No, I totally get that, and I should point out that when I say I'm not a fan. It's not a reflection on the movies. I just haven't watched them since they came out, and so I'm not an expert on them. I, I, I watched all four of them. I enjoyed two of them, <laughs> but I don't remember enough about them to be able to ever have a conversation without rewatching them. But I, but I remember enough to know that they get progressively worse as they go along, and that three is really not much of a step up above four. So with that, no, no, three is three is actually worse than yeah, four. probably yeah. See again, like I don't remember enough. I, I remember disliking four a lot, and that's what stood out in my head. But I probably hated three too. <laughs> with that in mind, I think Conquest is Jaws one point five, because I think it is in its own right a great film, but it's not as good as Planet. And so, but I, I rank it more highly than Scott does. And part of that is nostalgia. Part of that is the fact that when I was a child, um, those were films that my mom and I watched together whenever the 430 movie aired. And that, you know, it's amazing what that does for a kid. You know, it, it's like it's a bonding experience with a parent. And so I think that um, also because my mom from a very early age, um, my mom was kind of a hippie and she instilled in me pretty early on a lot of um she, she basically made it clear to us from when i was a child um why bigotry is a pretty awful thing she wanted us to grow up believing this and and she used this film as an uh, as, 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 a, as a, a teaching tool so for me there's there's um there's a, a personal connection to this movie that might not be there for everybody so i'd say just 1.5 all right. That's fair enough. And on that, I'm going to call a close to the show. I want to thank you guys for coming on. And, uh, you know, I already thank Zachy as well. It's always fun when we can get together and talk about these movies. Uh, this will be released, hopefully, you know, uh, hopefully I'm not uh, expecting more than we can do. But this should be released in conjunction with a Back to the Bins episode, uh, also going over the comic book version of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. So hopefully everybody will enjoy both. Uh, we're going to be looking to put together the same panel for that discussion. Uh, and then we're going to get together and discuss Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And if you think we disagree with Scott now, just wait till you hear us talking about that one. <laughs> oh, I don't feel the buzz like that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing Scott's opinion of it. But, but but make sure that you do what you did for Conquest and watch them back to back. You'll be amazed at what a difference the film is. Uh, from one, you know, you know, really, I'm looking forward to that because honestly, I know I have to have seen uh, the unrated of Battle because I, I, you know, when I bought them on on Blu-ray, I couldn't wait to devour you know every feature that was on there. But I have no memory of that whatsoever. So I'm really Nor looking do I. forward to it. Maybe you'll yeah. hate. Maybe it won't. Stay. Maybe it didn't stay with you for a reason. But uh, <laughs> I don't remember. How did you? What was your opinion of? Uh, did you like Beneath? Beneath? That, yeah. I, I like. I don't think I was. I on that. I don't think I was on that. One. I can't remember. Explain why I don't remember. Okay. If, if, but the thing is, I, if, uh, if you loved Beneath, then I think you'll enjoy the extended version of Battle because an entire plotline connected to Beneath was cut out. 
And uh, so now, if you it, didn't like Beneath, that might be problematic for you. <laughs> what, what's interesting, uh, or what might be interesting for you, is uh, when when we did our Planet of the Apes month on Back to the Bins, Scott and Chris Honeywell also did a Back to the ba- uh, excuse me a Planet of the Apes month on the Two True Freaks Network. Oh, and that's they right. did, oh my god, I forgot that. Yeah, they did they did commentaries on the first four movies. Uh, but Scott was so adverse to doing a, a commentary <laughs> on on Beneath the Planet, on Battle for the Planet of the Apes, rather, that myself and Andrew Leyland did the commentary for that one to save them oh from having God, to do it. Oh, I had forgotten entirely about that. That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're right. That is available somewhere on the Is It Yours feed if anybody's <laughs> looking for it. I did repost that at one point. I think it was when, when Zachy and I did Rise for the Planet of the Apes, I, I reposted that commentary uh episode but anyway thank you guys for coming on and listening (laughs) or coming on and talking and thank you everybody else for listening go ahead (laughs) i I just wanted to say i really appreciated you reiterating the the jaws scale especially with jaws 3 because jaws 3 by my personal definition the movie jaws 3 is a stinker big time i i do not think this movie's a stinker i i enjoy this movie a lot but i couldn't rate it a jaws 2 because of the rewatchability factor if if i have a reason to watch this movie again like i did for you know doing this examination of it then absolutely i'll watch it and and i generally enjoy it but it's not one that i would like pick out to watch or if i was flipping channels and it's on i wouldn't necessarily stop and go hey let me watch this again that you know so that that's really my reasoning i just wanted to clarify i for this particular thing i almost wish we had done like the planet of the apes scale because a five movie you know having five to rate from instead of just four to rate from would be perfect because it falls like right in the middle which i think is well i did i did add a fifth category if you'll recall Uh, i took from back to the future 2 and i made a jaws 17 (laughs) ranking and and that actually i think i think jaws 4 actually ranks as jaws 17 and the definition for that is it's so bad that you actually laugh while you're watching it and enjoy it for that reason. And Jaws 4 fits that category. You could create a Godzilla scale because then you'd have 1 to 33. You could say, oh, it's, it's not quite a Godzilla 28, but it's definitely a, it's a Godzilla 29. It's a, you know, definitely. Don't, don't give me ideas, Rich. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm going to call it a night, and thank you again for coming on. Thank you, everybody who listened, and uh, we'll be back. Bye. Thanks. Slightly? 
What you have seen here today, apes on the five continents will be imitating tomorrow. With knives against guns, with kerosene cans against flamethrowers. Where there is fire, there is smoke. And in that smoke, from this day forward, my people will crouch and conspire and plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall, the day when he finally and self-destructively turns his weapons against his own kind, the day of the writing in the sky, when your cities lie buried under radioactive rubble, when the sea is a dead sea and the land is a wasteland, out of which I will lead my people from their captivity, and we shall build our own cities, in which there will be no place for humans except to serve our ends, and we shall found our own armies, our own religion, our own dynasty, and that day is upon you now!